greetings, and welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and for this episode of the Net Positive, I'm joined by Rob Watson, a great friend for many years and clearly one of the most influential environmentalists in the United States. He's considered the founding father of LEAD. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a lot of his other projects and, and how his impact uh, has been magnified over the years as he's gone from working domestically to internationally. So this week, it's Rob Watson on the Net Positive. Rob, thanks for, so much for joining the Net Positive. How are you today? Good, good. It's been a long time, Ted. It's great to see you and great to talk to you. It's great to see you too. You know, it, 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 it stuck in my mind. I don't know if you remember this, but we did go to the Bolshoi Ballet together in Moscow. That was a really interesting trip. Uh, I mean, there was such amazing ferment with, you know, that, you know, the nuclear summit going on and, and Gorbachev announcing the Green Cross. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, that, that was that was a great trip with with Amory and a lot of uh, a lot of superstars and sustainability. Yeah, it really was. It really was. And I, and we kind of blew out of the Bolshoi after a while. We, I, I don't think ballet is in your uh, your interests or mine either, really. Uh, I, I, I love the athleticism of, of ballet. I, I think dancers generally are amazing athletes. And, um, you know, it, it, who knows what was going on at that point. It could have been a ballet I wasn't into or there was something else or I had something in the morning. I don't remember, but I, I, I try and stick it out if I can. We didn't stick it out that time, but we actually found something more fun to do, I remember. But but it was an honor to be there, and uh, that was a great. That was a great thing. Let's go all the way back. Uh, born and raised where? Well, you know, my my early life was was uh, peripatetic. Uh, I was born in Chicago, spent a few years in suburban Jersey outside of New York. Uh, went to Mexico, high school in in California, uh, college in New Hampshire back to San Francisco and then DC and then uh, New York, where I've been for the last uh, 25 years now. What, what was taking, what was your, what was your family doing that you went to all those places, Chicago, Jersey, Mexico? California. Yeah. Well, early on, my dad worked for I've been moved uh, or IBM. And uh, so, you know, we uh, that that sort of took us all the way through um, California. And then my dad decided that he didn't want to do the corporate rat race. Uh, so he bought a restaurant in New Hampshire uh, in, in Hanover, which is where I went to school at Dartmouth. So I took a I took a gap year, worked at the at the restaurant um, and it was an amazing education. Uh, and then, you know, I worked at the restaurant, worked my way through college, uh, you know, um, and uh, yeah, Dartmouth was an amazing experience for me. You know, that, that was Lou's restaurant. And I don't think I knew that until sort of doing a little research on you this morning. But my my family was in Woodstock, Vermont and uh-huh. came yes. to Hanover all the time and probably yeah. went to lose, uh, I would imagine. Yeah, no doubt. It, 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 you know, that was sort of the place where the kids took their parents. Um, and, you know, we would go to the, the, for special occasions, we'd go to the Woodstock Inn. So, yeah, there, there's exactly. definitely, you know, you, 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 you'd come to San, Hanover for slumming and we'd, we, you know, we, when we were stepping out, we'd go to Woodstock. <laughs> and my mom lived right up Church Hill there, if you could picture right from the Woodstock Common. 
right okay. up from the end there uh, for many years. So, and then early childhood um, influences or interests. Was there any? Was there any inkling that you were headed towards this environmental career, or what were you thinking when you were a kid? Yeah, I, don't, I mean, you know, my my uncles might have uh, my my uh, my mother's uh, brother might have recognized it early because when when we would get presents, I would get like you know subscriptions to Ranger Rick, and my brother would get the cool T-shirt. Um, but I loved, you know, I loved uh, nature. I mean, I was a Boy Scout. That was a huge influence on me. Um, and, uh, you know, got my Eagle Scout when I was 13 and spent a lot of time, you know, backpacking in the Sierras. Uh, was pretty surprised I survived a couple of those trips. Uh, there was one blizzard where... Uh, we were snowbound for 72 hours and a party of six uh, that tried to beat the storm out uh, died like on the other side of the ridge from us. And we were smart. We just stayed put um, when things got nasty. So, yeah, uh, definitely yeah. earned respect, you know, learned respect for nature, uh, both in terms of its wild beauty, but also it's it's uh, implacable follow the rules or get kicked out, uh, you know, situation. What did you study at Dartmouth? Um, I created my own major uh, called energy policy, not surprisingly. Um, you know, uh, Amory Levins came uh, to the school in, uh, I think, the summer of 81, um, or maybe it was the fall, spring of 82. Um, and then um, I went out to RMI to uh, help build it. You know, I was, uh, as I noted, working in, in the family restaurant. So I cooked for the crew. Uh, learned how to, you know, mix mud and tie rebar and, and, you know, lay up stones and stuff like that. It was, again, a great experience. And, and, you know, there was just this really amazing um, cast of, you know, just incredibly deep thinkers coming through Rocky Mountain Institute at that point. I mean, it, it was just such an amazing time of ferment. Uh, just so blessed to, you know, have that experience. And then, um uh, Dana or Danella Meadows was one of my very strong mentors uh, at Dartmouth and, and really, really helped shape it. And um, I took a, my, my freshman seminar was uh, solar architecture. And I think that kind of began gelling my interest uh, and, and appreciation for the importance of buildings in an environmental setting. I knew Dana Meadows when I worked at RMI, which is just a few years after you built the building. I was the first energy program director. And then I would go to Dartmouth and, and uh, lecture at her class, uh, which, was, which was a great honor. And by the way, I'm, I'm, we're broadcasting from Colorado right now. I'm in, I'm in Old Snowmass. Oh, nice. Amory was just here for dinner the other night. Uh, Rick Heady uh, and I had ping pong night the other night. Yeah. Some of the original, we had pretty much the original RMI crew here together uh, for the uh, past. Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was a great experience um, for sure. Did you go to Columbia first, or did you go to Berkeley or program next? Well, I, yeah, so after I graduated from Dartmouth, I actually took I, I did a senior fellowship um, in which I, I did a systems dynamic model of the dynamics of the New York housing situation. Um, because there were, were all these abandoned but structurally sound buildings. And, and my, my idea 
was that, oh, through urban homesteading, you could actually revitalize these neighborhoods, give people agency and ownership and, and, um, and, and, you know, interestingly, uh, the, the model that I set up, you know, replicated, you know, the situation pretty well. And I, and one of the things that was really fascinating to me was that the, the, at the, at the time, the program that the city had set up around urban homesteading, which was quite innovative. Um, but, but my research found that the program was designed to fail. Uh, it's it set up hurdles and hoops that were so hard to get through, nobody could get through it. And, and it basically kept this cycle of disenfranchisement and, and, you know, sort of removal of agency from people. Cause the thing that really, you know, when I was, when I took a class, I, I, one of the things I just, that just jumped out at me was like 30% or more of some folks in poverty uh, money was going to energy bills. And I'm like, you know, choosing between staying warm or, or eating. And I was like, this is not right. And that, again, that is another one of the catalysts that sort of set me on, on the, on the green building trajectory. And then so I did Berkeley first. I got my master's yeah. at Berkeley. Um, and, uh, you know, I was working at NRDC at the time. Um, you know, I was sort of a junior, you know, program associate working with uh, David Goldstein and Ralph Cavana, uh, just amazing, amazing mentors. I mean, I, you know, I mean, talk about being between a rock and a hard place. Uh, just, you know, the, the uh, just astonishing analytical mind of both of those gentlemen, but one from more of a science perspective in terms of David and then policy from Ralph. And I was like, my, my goal was to be, you know, as analytically sharp as David and as uh, insightful from a policy and, and as articulate uh, as Ralph. And, and that was, you know, so I had, I had some pretty high bars to, to, to reach, you know, David, as you know, was a MacArthur genius. And so uh, I, I, I had, I, it's just, I've been so blessed with just these amazing people in my life. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful. I know that both well and Ralph and I are still in pretty close touch. I have a huge amount of respect for, for that guy, <laughs> that guy. Yeah. No, and as, as, as uh, Alan Hershkowitz, who was with you at NRDC tells the story, you were pretty clear that you needed some sort of a simple rating system for, there was all sorts of complex rating systems for buildings going on and, and Alan didn't think you could synthesize it down to something simple. And you said, watch this. And with others in the U.S. Green Building Council, you formed LEED. Yeah, well, so, you know, Mike Atali, when I was working in the L.A. office and, you know, we were, you know, my, my master's thesis at Berkeley uh, sort of told the tale of the greening of the New York office of our, our headquarters office. And, you know, we had, we had proposed half a watt a square foot for lighting and, and right, you know, at then, you know, two Watts was considered radical. Right. And, uh, and, and even inside NRDC, people were joking, oh yeah, Watson and Goldstein, you know, they're, their, their solution is miners' helmets, right? And, and there was a lot of, believe me, there were a lot of sleepless nights. Um, but, you know, uh, the Croxton Collaborative uh, folks did such an amazing job um, on, on the design and, and were, were absolutely brilliant, worked very closely with us. And, and they, they started the whole materials thing. Um, and then, you know, I was doing something similar in the Los Angeles office. And I was like, 
okay, I want to tag because the Croxton folks had started indoor air quality. Uh, and so I'm like, uh, I was working with Hirsch. I was working with um, another woman um, whose name I'm blanking on, but um, you know, she was leading kind of trying to demonstrate markets for recycled building products. Right. And that was one of the things that we were going to be doing in the LA office. Um, and so uh you know, I started getting calls from this guy, Mike Italiano. I didn't know from Adam and he would just not leave me alone. And he was like, you got to join the green building council. So I'm like, all right, well, what's a green building. Right. And I was talking to all these people and I, everybody, I, everybody I talked to, I got a different answer. And I'm like, this isn't going to work. So when we had a, um, you know, a confab in Phoenix, uh, probably 1991, 1992, about, you know, what's this thing going to do and what's this thing going to be? Um, you know, they're like, we need to set up a, you know, we, we need to set up a standard. And I'm like, I raised my hand. I'm like, I know codes and standards. So that's, I'll, I'll take on that. I'll take on the green building rating system, which was, uh, you know, the, as it was artfully called back then. Uh, and, you know, that, you know, there are few of us sitting around a table at NRDC for the first, uh, you know, a couple of years and, you know, worked with a lot of people um, to, you know, just build, uh, you know, we, we first we had to decide, are we going to do our own? Because, you know, there was Bream in, in the UK, had been out for like 10 years and BPAC and, uh, you know, uh, living the, uh, there was another challenge. There was a very, very detailed uh, standard going in, 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 in Canada but none of them were appropriate for the U.S. market, um, ironically, because they were carbon-based in terms of their, you know, energy footprint, which is fine for a, you know, a country with, uh, you know, one grid. But if you have energy sippers in Ohio doing worse than energy hogs in Seattle just because of the grid, um, we figured that, you know, all of the, even if it wasn't necessarily carbon, energy efficiency captured all of the benefits of, of low carbon. Uh, plus, you know, I mean, and, and wasting energy, any energy, whether it's hydro or solar, or whatever, is just not a good thing. So energy efficiency became the focus. And, and you know, that, that's why we created our own system uh, rather than uh, trying to adapt Bream to uh, the U.S. Were you surprised at how, how it took off? I mean, I was surprised because I was I, I, I remember having some meetings and and they just turned into lead love fests. And uh so sort of being a detailed energy guy, I thought lead was a little bit soft on energy, but my goodness, uh, your success was unquestionable, the uptake, the, the adoption. Well, you know, if I had a dollar for everybody who told me just to focus on energy uh, and, you know, keep it simple and everything like that, I could have retired. Um, but the fact was, you know, we already had Energy Star, right? So we weren't going to be adding anything to the market. Um, and, and, and really what we, what we desperately needed to do at the time was to make people think beyond the lot line, uh, you know, the architects, engineers, et cetera, you can't build a you know, uh, an art monument to humanity and, and destroy cathedrals of nature at the same time and think that you're, you're creating something. Right. Um, and, and so, uh, it, it just, you know, we wanted, we wanted to create something that would, uh, be able to, to uh, help people understand all of the impacts of buildings. Um, and I think, 
you know, I, I, I think timing was good. I mean, if we had launched this thing in 2006, for example, I don't think, I think we would have died. Um, but, you know, we launched it when we did, you know, the AIA had started, you know, the Committee on the Environment, you know, there was a lot of sort of nascent awareness. Um, and, and, you know, we took our time to do a good job on it. Um, and I mean, some of the early drafts were laughable, frankly, but, um, you know, we kept at it and, uh, yeah, luck favors the prepared. Um, and, uh, it, I was, you know, I, I would have been happy with 5%, right. In my brain, I was like, all right, if we get 5% of the market, I'll be happy. And, and I was thrilled to see it take off. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think having a cool name was, was part of it, um, and that there's a whole story behind that too. But um, anyway, the, so yeah, we, I think we did, I think we did a pretty good job. I mean, you well, know, you just, you, you just came up with that 5% uh, number. Is there, what is the number that you think? Uh, well, I mean, we were sort of, again, it, you know, there's a lot of art and science, right. You know, when you, you say 5% of what, yeah. right. And, and so, you know, I mean, look, one of the big failures of lead, frankly, is um, it's relatively low penetration in the existing building market. Um, and, you know, the the organization made a series of tactical and strategic mistakes early on, which, you know, I tried to correct. Um, but, you know, it just it wasn't willing to cannibalize its 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 um, its uh, origins in, in, in favor of the whole market. In other words, it was, it was founded by engineers and architects and right. That's, and that's 90% of new, new buildings. And so, you know, the, so 90% of the board was engineers and architects, right. And we're like 80% of all floor areas, existing buildings. And yet, you know, we're like, oh yeah, we got an existing building person or, you know, half the floor area in the country is residential. Well, we got a home builder, right. On a 15-person board, you got one existing building person and one home builder. And it's like, you know, I, I kept saying, are we the U.S. new commercial building council or are we the U.S. green building council? And, and you know, we just, I, the, the organization was not um, able or willing to adjust itself to the realities of the entire building market and get, I mean, it was sort of, almost founder syndrome, right? But but instead of an individual, it was like a group. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, in spite of its massive success and, and, and continued attempts to, to be, um, you know, uh, influential and important. And it, of course it continues to be, but, but those mistakes like 25 years ago, um, you know, are one of the reasons things are kind of flat right now because, you know, we just did not build and, and, and look, you know, it was, it was, you know, obviously hindsight's 2020 and some of us were looking forward and making these comments, but, you know, um, it, it is what it is. And, and hopefully, you know, the council can get its feet under itself and, 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 and reinvent itself a little bit. Um, and, and maybe work a little bit more closely with the existing building folks, with, with the home builders. Um, but, you know, the reality is, is that the problem, you know, the, the reason we're not getting as much sustainability or climate impact um, as we could, it's not the fault of USGBC or it's not the fault of LEED. Um, you know, it's like blaming a piano for, you know, you know, obviously you, the pianos need to be tuned, but if you can't play the damn piano, 
then you're not going to produce music with it, right? They're only 88 keys and yeah, it's limited, but it's only, it's limited by the, the art. And, and the problem is, is that the artist, if you will, and, and that's the building industry writ large is structurally incapable of, of, of delivering sustainability at scale, scope, and speed right now. I don't care if you do, you know, everybody's talking about, oh, lead zero. Um, you know, we've got living building challenge. And, and the fact is, is that the, the, the structure of the industry can barely deliver lead gold, let alone net zero, except, you know, with, you know, obviously there are exceptions, but if you, you know, yeah, there are thousands of net zero buildings, uh, but it's like a hundredth of a percent of the floor area out there. And, and that just shows that it's, you know, yes, it's possible, but it's not, it's not scaling. And, and that's because design construction operations are siloed. Um, and within each of those silos, you have casts of thousands. Um, everybody is a specialist. They've learned to optimize components, but the result is a suboptimized system. So until we massively consolidate and put design construction and operations under one roof, and have life cycle sustainability where one team builds, uh, designs, builds, and operates a building for its life. We are not going to hit 80 by 50. I don't care what you do. I don't care how many incentives you lie out there. You're just pouring water into the sand and it will never, ever, we will never, ever reach our goal until uh, we get a new structure to the building industry. That's really interesting. And uh, you talked about the existing stock being 80% of the floor area or, or something like that. And, you know, in California, we have, as you know, these big and bold initiatives for every home to be, every home to be energy self-sufficient by 2020. We're in that now and every commercial building by 2030. Uh, but, you know, what is our, our, our building stock is turning over at what, one and a half percent per year or something like that? Yeah, so. well, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and again, that we, we, we need to get the lost opportunities when they're there. Uh, but uh, like I said, it's just, you know, we, we just, there's just a disconnect between what the industry can produce and what we need. And so, you know, for all of the, um, you know, intense hard work and all the achievements that we've made so far, I mean, the reality is, is that the productivity of the sector has basically been flat for a century. And you look at other industries and they've, you know, they, I mean, you might have a 20, 30% productivity increase in construction in the last century. And you look at other industries and it's three, 400, 500% increase in productivity. And, and, and again, that is structural. Um, so, you know, un, until, uh, you know, we put it all under one roof and get everybody pulling on the oar in the same direction as a rower in college, um, you know, it, we're, the boat's just not going to go, it's just not going to go forward. Let's shift, let's shift to the Green Schools Alliance. This was something else that was, has been a big part of your life. Maybe it still is a big part of your life. Talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, my wife founded uh, the Green Schools Alliance back in 2007, um, in part because my son, you know, he obviously he osmosed some of my environmental, uh, you know, uh, sensibilities and, and wanted to celebrate Earth Day. So, uh, my wife convened a bunch of 
uh, schools, and we brought in a, we brought in Story Musgrave, who was the astronaut who fixed the Hubble telescope back in the day, and you know we we're, were sort of talking about uh, the Earth and you know, a, a whole series of private schools in, in, in New York and, and some of the public schools were like, this is a really cool thing. And so it, it sort of started informally. And then I guess people were talking and all of a sudden, you know, Peg was getting calls saying, uh, how do you join the Green Schools Alliance? And she's like, uh, well, <laughs> maybe they're, you know, so, so it, 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 it turned into an organization. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been, been chairing it for a little while. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got 10,000 schools in 100 countries, and we've got a really, really cool platform called uh, START, which is sustainability tracking and roadmap tools. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a, you know, a simplified dashboard that gives about 150 things that you can do, 50 measures, three stages. Um, and so you can not only uh, sort of show what you're doing and share your results with the peers, but it also gives you a roadmap, right? It gives you the next step. Well, if you're here, here's what you can do next. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's a highly simplified platform and, and there's really, you know, nothing like it out there. Um, so we're very excited about it. And uh, now that, you know, obviously we've been kind of on pause because of COVID, but um, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, we're very proud of what, what that has accomplished because, you know, giving uh, the younger generation agency and hope in the future, I think that's going to be absolutely key to survival for humanity. I agree. Well, congratulations on that. I'm trying to understand how you keep all these things, all these balls up in the air. I, I, I've seen something called EcoHub, Econ Group, Prima Film, Upland Roads, Green Schools Alliance, Sweep. What what is your what is what's what's dominating your time right now, or are you as are you as fragmented as it as it appears to the outsider? Uh, so I you know Upland Road uh, is my you know current uh, focus. Uh, sweep is a is basically sweep is lead for solid waste, um, and um, Upland Road is we're developing uh, eco industrial facilities that we're calling smart centers for sustainable materials and advanced recovery technologies. And basically, uh, you know, we have technology that can take mixed waste. In other words, you don't have to figure out what bin to put it in anything. You put it into one bin. And so instead of having the garbage and recycling, you basically have one recycling bin. Everything goes in that. And then we have machines that are, uh, you know, very accurate, very effective at taking everything in the waste stream and turning it into its, uh, you know, into clean and consistent materials. And, you know, when things are mixed, yeah, there's a, you know, things get a little bit dirty, but, you know, on the back end, uh, we take those feedstocks and we turn them into new products with uh, manufacturing facilities that are co-located with the separation technology. Um, and so instead of selling bales of paper, we are selling rolls of craft paper. And it's basically, it's like wheels on luggage. We are taking proven technology and all we did was sequence it in a new way uh, to allow all of the material in the materials in the in the discarded material stream to be separated rather than the, just the stuff that people chose to put uh, in, in the blue bin. And, and those materials, by the way, were, were decided in the 70s, right? So you've got things like glass, which of course all materials are worth recycling, but its environmental footprint is like one one hundredth that of textiles, <laughs> right? And 
where are, you know, if, if we're talking about recycling being an environmental activity, why aren't we recycling every scrap of textiles in, 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 in the waste stream? Because, you know, again, that footprint is way bigger than almost anything else out there. Um, so what, you know, what we're doing is creating, um, you know, backend processing technologies for all these materials and turning them into new products, soil amendments and clean energy. So that's what EcoHub does. And then basically sweep is, is sort of the market transformation analog where we're defining broadly what sustainable materials management means and, uh, and, and um, how to uh, you know, create policies and collect data and make your collection, your recovery uh, more efficient and effective. And, and also we give, uh, we reward people for good performance in the disposal area like keeping track of your methane and not allowing runoff and litter to come out of your landfill or your, or your material recovery facility or your transfer station, et cetera. Um, so that's sort of part of that, you know, create mar create markets and then sell into them strategy. So you've kind of gone, if I could simplify, and it's probably not fair, but you've kind of gone from buildings to schools to solid waste. Is that, is that at all fair? Well, it, it, sort of. I mean, interestingly enough, the the my my detour into waste was actually driven by buildings because, um, you know, we were about ten years ago. We were developing a series of tools for delivering the life cycle sustainability thing, and we were trying to sell it to people. And everybody's like, oh, all the engineering architecture firms were like, oh yeah, we're optimizing, and and uh, when when in fact they weren't, but they were saying the words and and you know the developers and everybody's like, well, you know, we know these guys, we don't know you. Where have you done it before? It's like, well, how would you like to be the first? And they're like, no, thank you. Um, so when I uh, got into uh, you know at the uh, well, what at the time was EcoHub, they're like, yeah, let's let's do this. Let's let's go and you know create this new uh delivery you know we we want our buildings to be the best right and so this was going to be the platform that i was going to use to begin building that life cycle sustainability for building project delivery in the context of waste so that you know rather than just focus on the buildings things it wasn't going to happen without the waste thing being successful, right? And obviously, we're trying to transform another industry that is pretty low productivity, pretty high bound, pretty guild-like. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's it's taken a while to get to the point where uh, we can begin delivering these projects, demonstrate uh, this uh, new project delivery method. So there, there, there has been a method to the madness and it's all kind of like, you know, trying to optimize a system. But, you know, when you, when you attack things that violate Miss Piggy's third law, which is never eat more than you can lift, uh, it can sometimes take a while to chew it uh, enough to get it uh, down into the stomach. <laughs> You're sounding like Amory. Um, which is fun. And, and Tom Friedman, New York Times columnist, uh, has considered you what one of the great environmental minds of America. And I, I can see why. What he, he, I know he calls you and he leans on you for advice. What, what's he like? Again, I, just, I, I consider Tom another one of those blessings of the people who's been uh, both hugely influential and, and you know, who, who I've been so grateful to be put in touch with. Um, you know, one of my former NRDC colleagues, uh, Glenn Prickett, who was at CI at the time, Conservation International, 
Um, he was in China with Tom and we had just developed probably the most influential building in, in the world um, that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, it was the Agenda 21 project uh, for the Ministry of Science and Technology. Um, and we uh, basically reduced energy consumption by 70% compared to uh, comparable buildings, you know, government buildings in, in Beijing. Um, and, you know, we worked very closely with Lawrence Berkeley uh, Lab. Joe Huang uh, was, was, magnet, was, was, you know, very instrumental. And, and you know, the, the Department of Energy basically, you know, wrote an RFP saying tons of work for no money. And of course, at NRDC, we found that, you know, irresistible. So, you know, they had been, you know, uh, Ministry of Science and Technology and DOE had been trying to do a program for like two years prior to that. Um, so we did it. And within six months, you know, we, we, we had uh, a group of people, you know, working on design. We brought Chinese people to Carnegie Mellon um, and, and worked with, you know, the building scientists there, did a charrette. Um, and, and we, you know, ended up, you know, Lawrence Berkeley did a lot of modeling. So we ended up with a building. And, and the reason I say it was uh, probably the most influential, you know, most impactful building in the world um, is that uh, that building directly led to uh, the adoption of China's first non-residential building code, because they were going to do something where they were going to only save 10 or 20 percent. And we uh, uh, we proved that 50 percent was feasible because we beat 50 percent by 80 <laughs> percent. So, you know, and so you know, all of a sudden, people who are trying to weaken the code realize that, you know, with good design and good technology, you can get so much farther than, uh, you know, the, the code. And then uh, the city of Beijing used it as a model for a government retrofit program. And uh, I proposed to Shuding Huan, who was the head of uh, most of the uh, most of the time Ministry of Science and Technology, he was the he was one of the directors. Um, that, you know, we make green buildings one of the 10 scientific achievements of the Beijing Olympics. And he said, yeah, we need a 10th because they only had nine at the, at the time. So it's like, yeah, green buildings are going to be the 10th. And so that led to a whole series of, um, uh, you know, changes to a lot of the venues and, and, made, and made green buildings one of the, one of the Beijing Olympic scientific uh, achievements. Um, so, you know, Tom had, Tom had heard about that. And so I took him through and just showed him, you know, what it was. And we just really hit it off. Um, you know, he's, he's just so thoughtful and, and he's just one of the people he, 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 he has an ability to synthesize that is, is almost magical. You know, he can take these really disparate concepts and then just gel them into, uh, you know, uh, just this amazing triptych of, of, you know, uh, it's just very easy to grasp and understand. And um, so anyway, we, we, we've been, we've been uh, friends ever since. I like the way you call these blessings. You know, you talked about Cavana and Goldstein and Friedman and Lovins. And yeah, these are, these are blessings. I'm, I'm oh, with you on that. Let's wrap with a few softball questions. I always ask people how they keep balance. And I, you've got a, I, I'm Facebook friends with you and you've got a little garden plot right in, right in Manhattan. That it just seems to be one of the loves of your life. It's, I call it dirt therapy. Um, and I just, I, I find that, um, you know, 
I am always fascinated by systems. And so I learned about systems from cooking and from gardening, right? Because everything, you know, if you're, if you're cooking properly, you're not wasting anything. It's like anything, you know, if you chop something, you know, it can either go into compost or it can go into a soup stock or something like that, right? So you're always trying to pr- figure out how, you know, it, it's, it's like Paul Bierman Lytle used to say, uh, which, which, which Bill McDonough popularized is that, you know, there's no waste in nature, you know, some, one thing's waste is another thing's food, right? So that, 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 that concept. And so trying to bring that into buildings. Um, and so gardening is just my ability, you know, just again, to, to maintain that wonder, bring some beauty, right? You know, I, I converted to Judaism 25 years ago. Um, and the, and there's a, there's a discipline in, or a, a sort of a, a, a path in Judaism called Tikkun Olam, which is basically heal the world. And, and that's really, that's Buddhism. Uh, uh, I think Hinduism has the, the, um, path of karma, right? Where it's basically, you know, you, you manifest good work. So that's, that's kind of my spiritual path is, is manifesting what I try, you know, what I try, what I try and do. And I'm obviously not always successful. I'm human, um, is manifest this healing the world and just, you know, showing, not saying, but doing. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are checking out your garden, right? Oh yeah. No, no, they, it's, I mean, again, look, you know, I've got, you know, it, it's, it's in a very rough area and, you know, there's, there's a lot of drug dealers and I'm friends with all of them. Um, I never judge them. You know, I ask their advice on things. Uh, and I'm like, you know, then if they tell me they like it, you know, I'm like, I'm doing this so that you have a nice place to be a lot of homeless people. Um, and, and so, you know, again, I just think everybody, uh, if you demonstrate that you care and you demonstrate the, you know, it, it's like, what is, what did Gandhi say? Be the, be the, be the future you want to see. That's kind of what, that's kind of what I do. So I go down a few hours a week and I just do it, you know, uh, pretty much every weekend that I can, uh, which is probably, you know, with, with, with exception of winter, you know, almost every weekend. Um, and it just, I, it's, it's way cheaper than therapy. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it, I, I get a lot out of it. That's great. And, and then I just love your uh, Peloton trip. Um, you've been cycling across on a virtual trip, a Peloton trip across the country. Rob, you're inspired. I bicycle. I bike every day, but not on a Peloton. And, uh, yeah. It's just made me want to do what you're doing. It's great. Well, with the with the pandemic, I mean, in New York City, I mean, I I've got the park right next door, so you know, it, it would be easy to get out. But there are only so many loops you can do without going nuts. And um, just the the it's really important to stay fit. Uh, I, I find that physical fitness leads to mental fitness, which leads to, you know, just it just helps regulate everything else. Um, and you know, with a pandemic we couldn't really go to the gym. Right. So, you know, we, I had, I had started to get into the Peloton a little bit before that. So we got one at home. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I do power zone and I lead a, a power zone team, um, with a hundred people from around the world. And it's awesome. And, and just, you know, again, having the discipline, uh, and the structure really, really helps a lot. And, uh, you know, it just, like I said, it's, um, it's either it's easier than a life of crime, which is probably what would have happened to me with all my energy if if it weren't channeled in a, in a uh, positive direction. Well, thanks so much for uh, all the channeling that you do do, uh, because you're not just taking care of yourself, but you're taking care of our society, and that's a beautiful thing. 
Thanks so much for being with me this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the invitation and it's great to see you again and, and hope maybe we'll uh, catch up someplace and uh, take a bike ride together. It'd be a lot of fun. I'd like to. Thanks, Rob. Yeah. All right, Ted. Take care. Talk to you soon. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time. Thank you.